Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to sen.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very interesting guest. You know, we're going to be talking, you know, quite a bit about building and scaling companies. You know, he has the roots coming from Startup Nation, but they obviously grew up, you know, in the U.S. And I think that we're going to be learning, you know, quite a bit about the whole, the whole cycle of being an entrepreneur. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Tomer Kagan. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. So originally born in Israel, but you went, you came here to the U.S. You know quite early. So uh, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. You know how were how was life growing up? Yeah, it was good. My my family moved here when I was four, specifically to Silicon Valley. My my dad got an engineering degree in Israel, wanted to kind of move out here where everything was happening, uh, give us the best shot we had, and you know it was uh, it was really interesting because a lot of Israelis are in Silicon Valley, so you kind of have a bit of a community. And then I, I would say, you know, beyond that is that just growing up with, you know, my, my dad being in sort of the startup world and being around a lot of kids whose their parents were in startup world, you kind of have this, this view that, well, you know, the only job that you really can get is being a, a coder, being a programmer, right? So you kind of grow with this notion that it's all about computer science. It's all about STEM. That's really the only way to go. And, and, that, and that's kind of what I always thought that, you know, I wasn't, I never wanted to actually really study computer science much. Uh, specifically after, you know, meet my first sort of computer science course is really on C++, really made me not want to go back to it ever again. So, so I kind of felt like I wasn't really fitting in because, you know, in Silicon Valley, everybody here wanted to be, you know, an engineer. And then why, why biology? You know, out of all things, why do you decide biology was the path to, to go? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what, why any 18-year-old decides what it is they decide, really. Um, I think, you know, since I was a kid, I was interested in medicine. And I was interested in sort of, you know, the, the role of medicine and doctors. Um, and I found the, the topics to be interesting. I think, I think I thought it was interesting, therefore I need to study it. And I think today I just find that there's like a lot of really interesting topics. Doesn't mean you have to work in the field. And so while I've never really worked in the field more than a few months after college, I do think that the, the way of thinking has been really, really useful. Just the really kind of logical way of thinking and breaking things down has kind of helped me in, in other fields. Now, obviously, you you got started, you know, early into the whole entrepreneurial thing. I mean, you had your 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 rodeos. I mean, you had a you had a t-shirt company, and you know, you tested a bunch of stuff. 
But what happened right out of college? Because you were, you know, testing the grounds. You did your internships, you know, here and there. But, but it was it was not working as you had hoped. So walk us through what happened there. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's not really that it wasn't working. Like I was, I was working. I was working um, at a biotech company that was doing DNA sequencing, and I was there, and I was getting six figures out of college. I thought, wow, six figures out of college—that's amazing, right? But then, you know, the the weeks became months. And I realized I was working like 60 to 80 hour weeks and it was grueling work, not even a lot of human interaction. It was basically lab work. And then I kind of kind of took a step back and I said, wow, you know, uh, I could just blink and my life will pass me by. And at that same time, my old high school advisor, um, this guy named Dan Appleman, he gave me like a check for $25,000 before really had a business and said, you know, like do a business. I believe in you. And yeah, you know, you know, cash the check in a sense. And uh, you know, when someone believes in you like that, it's hard to say no. And that's kind of all I needed to basically take the risk, take the plunge. Uh, I left the company. I went and basically, you know, tried to start a business. And and it was a basically t-shirt printing business again. But this time we tried to elevate it more and try to bring you know, a little more tech into the scene. Now, in this case, I mean, what was the process? Because, I mean, obviously you you met, you know, your co-founder, right? And, uh, you know, that was a very special relationship that you guys, you know, have, have had for, for a long time now. And you've gone through several, you know, rodeos together. But I guess, wh- what would you say that, that make that relationship so unique? And, and, and how do you guys meet? Yeah, uh, it's a very, uh, very different relationship, actually. It's, um, so Jacob Bourne, who's also my co-founder at, at Merit, I, you know, met in, we met in really 2005. And at the time, he had just married, uh, out of the blue, a good friend of mine. Um, and I hadn't even met him. I mean, they, they were together for like nine months. And then, um, and, and so I heard about this person who was my good friend's husband. And then we went out, we had some, you know, got to get to know each other and everything. And we realized we just had a, you know, a lot of fun hanging out. We live right next to each other. And quickly it became, um, we started working on a project together. And then, it, and then she became my friend's wife. She did not appreciate that. And <laughs> And we, you know, we build this uh, long kind of standing relationship. We work on stuff together. We, I think what it was really is that we, you know, we argue a lot, a lot, but in all the years, we've never once had a fight. We've never once taken things personally. We, you know, we kind of push each other. We argue, we open each other up. I think what makes the relationship really, really good is that, you know, we are always, we never believe the other person is doing anything else, but trying to make, you know, both of us successful. I love that. Now. With this uh, company that you guys were running, you know, what 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 happened there? Because obviously that uh, led to a bunch of uh, events, you know, that that really pushed you into what ended up becoming Quixie. But uh, but what happened there? Yeah, I mean, you know, we we started doing that, started doing sales. Um, you know, it wasn't even like a startup in the traditional sense, right? We're doing like an S corp. You know, we we didn't know any better. I coming from Santa Cruz and not kind of being in the scene. My dad really being just an engineer at a startup. I didn't really know kind of the startup scene. And at the time, it was kind of like really for people from Stanford and Harvard or people whose parents were really VCs. And so we, we kind of, you know, raised friends and family. We kind of figured out business as we were going. And I'll tell you, everybody says like, yep, this is where I, where I am today. I actually tell people all the time, if I was much smarter back then, I would have probably taken a job working for an early you know, startup and learned in maybe a year what took me four or five years to learn. Right, it was kind of grueling, and we did, and we learned. And by two thousand eight, it was it was kind of humming, and then two thousand eight uh, came, and basically all our orders disappeared. You know, customers disappeared. Uh, we were doing basically marketing, and marketing kind of went away, especially goods. And so 
we we kind of wrapped it down, realizing we didn't want to suffer through, you know, basically lay off everybody so it's just us two and then build it back up. It was just, you know, too hard to get we were originally and too too much to kind of take it back. And also at the time we weren't really sure if this is really, really what we wanted to do. I think, you know, we were kind of a little confused. I think anybody in their twenties who goes through basically what we're gonna go through now, a recession and layoffs, starts asking themselves, Am I really doing the right thing? How many more years can I really push this? So that was that was kind of how we got together. And I think that the trial and tribulation, you know, I'll, I'll tell you one really quick story, which is one time, this is the whole thing of the t-shirt printing industry, we had some some printer in Las Vegas who were holding our shipment hostage, not to ship a massive shipment worth, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, which for us at the time, you know, massive. And um, holding it hostage unless we paid him basically double. And it was due as a rush shipment the next day. And we, you know, we would go out of business. This is the amount of money we would have lost because we fronted so much money. It was terrible, and we didn't know what to do. We were in our office till like two in the morning, and we were just going crazy. And we eventually solved it, by the way, by hiring someone off Craigslist to come and check on this person because the person was taking our calls. The guy who responded was like a, a bouncer for MGM, who on our behalf came, and basically we can hear on the phone him saying, "Hey, listen, I'm representing these people. I want to know what's going on." And I think because it's Vegas, you know, and there's always implications of what everything means. We got the shipment out. You know, we paid what we were supposed to pay. We got the shipment out. And everything was good. But it's those moments in time where you think it's like the end, it's existential, it's going to close. And you overcome those and you realize that the next time it happens, at least at that level, it doesn't scare you anymore. Okay, I've been here before. So, you know, Jake and I went through a lot of these level ups, a lot of these sort of trial and tribulations. And when you do them, it doesn't shock you. You just kind of go like, okay, I've been here. I know what to do. Let's roll up our sleeves. And especially when you do it with somebody, you know, okay, we know what we need to do. And we became kind of really, you know, reliant on each other to keep us at that level and keep us kind of moving forward. And so that, that kind of formed our bonds. I think if it wasn't for those early years, it wouldn't have allowed us to kind of make it through, you know, the other projects or, you know, make it through COVID even. So then with Quixie, how do you guys get started with Quixie then? Well, Quixie, I, um, I, I got started with Quixie. He actually ended up going to work real estate. And then I hired him on as the fifth employee originally to run business development. Um, you know, with Quixie, it was <laughs> kind of a, a silly story. It was really, um, you know, I don't even know if I gave it at the time, really, but, but really what it was is I wasn't sure what to do, what I wanted to work on. I had this idea at the time um, because the, the notion of software and, you know, apps on the web was becoming big. It wasn't just pages of content. Google at the time really didn't have a concept of searching it. And in fact, when we started, it was before the iPhone. It was the idea that like all these platforms, you know, at the time pass, platform as a service, all these startups creating all these hooks for, for apps to exist. And how can you search that? And I, and I started this with a, with a different guy, uh, Liron Shapiro, who I knew from high school. And, uh, and we, we got that started at that time. And, but that was really started because I kind of realized that I would much rather be working on something that doesn't succeed, but I'm passionate and I believe in it, than getting paid well to work on something and the days continue passing. And once you have that realization and, you know, I, I moved back home with my parents. I was like, this is going to be tough. I moved back. My parents went heads down, threw all my money and all myself into it. There were times in those early years where it was like, how many quarters do I have so I can actually check on gas, right? So it was, uh, it was pretty intense, but I wouldn't trade it, I guess is the thing. I wouldn't have gone back and gotten a nice stable job either. I think the amount of learnings and, and personal growth wouldn't have been able to be matched. Yeah, no, I hear you. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I gotta tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. 
And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. With Quixie, you know, like uh, you guys also went through the trial and error and the turbulence uh, and you had the 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 period of reset, you know, too, that, that really got you thinking and, and, and basically, you know, from then, you know, like it's when you decided, you know, to turn page, but but I guess it's like they said, you know, what, what uh, you either succeed or you learn, no? So, so what do you think that, that you, that you got out of the experience with Quixie? Yeah. I mean, I, I learned a lot of what not to do. Right. Um, you know, I, not just from stuff I did obviously, but from people around me, investors, executives, you know, make mistakes. We, you know, and I also got to meet a lot of incredible people, absolutely incredible people, people who I still think of today and look up to as, as sort of people who have helped inspire me. So things that were different were, you know, um, understanding better the notion of hiring and firing, understanding how to build healthier culture, understanding kind of how to build, you know, business in the right way. Uh, you know, no one really teaches you these things. MBA programs definitely don't. And it's, you know, it's all about kind of the mentors you have. I think the big thing in the startup world is really about mentorship. I was I was recently talking to somebody who's just finished an MBA uh, over in Berkeley, and this guy, you know, has worked at some of the biggest companies at Uber and Instacart and all these places, and and he just started at a company and started fundraising. And he goes, absolutely nothing I learned up to now or was told matches the reality, and that's really the truth, right? There's 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 not a lot of incentives out there for people to really tell it as it is, but they kind of gloss over, right? I launched it, and then people started using it. Well, it's not really true. Or fundraising, right? Fundraising is a whole weird game, right? So you're dealing with a lot of egos and a lot of individuals. So, you know, I think I think I learned a lot about sort of um, how you know how to build much healthier culture, how to fire people early, how to really focus. One of the things we did very differently: we weren't trying to raise big money at Merit. We we never have. We've always tried to raise based on accomplishment. I've even I even broke my seed round into three rounds and my A into two upfront, knowing it's going to take a few of those rounds, saying. Let us just prove X, then prove Y, then prove Z. And having these single motivations for the company early on really helps. You know, I, I always say, you know, uh, fundraising is terrible, but the fundraising process is necessary, right? Because it's, what, what are you really doing is like, okay, let's tighten everything up. Let's make everything look good because you're selling, right? It's like you're, you know, if you're going to sell a house, you're going to check everything out. In fact, you might even find issues in the house you didn't even know existed because you're getting it ready to sell. 
with a company, when you're fundraising, you have to go through that exercise. So the process for fundraising is kind of a good way of making sure. And if you actually line up those goals with the round, then you're not fundraising for the sake of it. You're using fundraising as a sort of forcing function for the company. And I think that's yeah. you know, one thing we did really, really well here. Now, let's talk about then about merit. So um, so how do, you, how do you guys come up with the idea and uh, how do you go about bringing it to life? What was that process like? Yeah, well, like, like all ideas, um, you know, it's a little bit unusual process. Um, back in 2014, it was like the winter of 2014, um, me and a few friends went to Belize. And a bunch of us were kind of in Belize. Uh, one of the people didn't have their paddy card and they couldn't go scuba diving. And so we're, we're kind of hiking in the jungle. We're kind of saying, well, you say you're a scuba diver. But if you are told you can't scuba dive anywhere, are you a scuba diver? Like, if I say I'm a surgeon, but no hospital lets me perform surgery, I have no credential, so like, am I a surgeon? Right? And so they would kind of let this whole philosophical conversation um, and realize that there's this, you know, to kind of bring it down, there's an operating system. The world has an operating system. It's like these licenses, credentials, we call them uh, statements of truth, right? From organizations to people that others can rely on, but like it's broken. It's like paper and plastic and like notes places and inefficient, but man, imagine if the world could be efficient. Imagine if we actually could make Verify Identity Digital. So it was inspiring. And I left and I couldn't get the thought out. I mean, you know, I would be hanging out and I would like be talking to people. At the time, people just come over my house all the time and pitch me ideas. And I would say, yeah, yeah. And I would like hear their whole idea, give feedback. Then I'd say, well, what do you think of this thing? And I would just kind of keep talking about it, which of course reinforces it. And eventually Jake, who had worked with me, you know, all these years, I just also left Quixie and goes, you know, I want to do this. And I go, great, because somebody needs to do this. Um, and so I fund it. I literally uh, put all the original money into it. Uh, two, two other people jump in who are with us in Belize and one more. Uh, these were people, you know, for the most part, I've known. Um, Omer and Jason, I knew back when they were 13 and 14 when I was a youth group advisor. Omer at the time was working at Foursquare. Um, you know, Jason at the time uh, was, was working at Quixie before. You know, there's Jake, and then there was Dylan, Dylan, who I met in the Quixie days. And, and he, Dylan's incredible in what he does. When he first came in, you know, we had him doing events at Quixie, and then he ran BD, and today runs all operations over at, uh, at Merit. So what's the business model of, of Merit for people that are listening to really get it? How do you guys make money? <laughs> well, we make money because we mostly sell the government and private organizations working with government. And what we do is we basically sell the full deployment of an entire kind of identity system. So. Give you an example. We were we were the system used at Surfside in Florida for the managing of individuals. So all these vendors sending people that sixteen thousand people, they need to come in. They get in our system automatically a merit, which also references their you know their vendor that's brought them in, their skill set, and every place they check in and check out in every zone gives a police and fire a, a notion of who's where and when. How they want to move people around, and then the receipts from their location, so they can actually then submit with more information from the different areas to get reimbursed for their company. So what we did is we basically ran the logistics on the ground and identity and access, and then all the receipts so that all the payments can be seamless. And we were very proud of the work we did there. And since then, we've done work in places like uh, recently just launched a large deal in uh, Ohio managing their education savings account system. Very proud of the success there. We do in the South a lot of workforce development, a lot of emergency management. So uh, Hurricane comes to Florida. we help basically all vendors check in and help kind of the notion of who is there with what skill sets and where and how can we use them. So, you know, we, we built a, a pretty generic platform that can handle all notions of identity issued by one organization that has to be verified from another. 
and we were basically selling the end-to-end implementation. One thing that we do that's a little different as well is we don't just sell software. Actually, we actually don't technically sell access to the platform. In fact, any organization in person can use it freely, and any organization can issue as many merits as they'd like, and any all verification is free on the system. We think that's a fundamental right in society. What we actually help is the implementation. So we call it software with a service. We'll help with everything like setting up the kiosk, doing the training, doing the staffing, even marketing for you, the release. Because what we care about isn't like, did you use our software? What we care about is, did you hit the goals of your program? Are you successful because of us? And so what we did at Merit is, I think a lot of investors weren't happy with this, which is we took it slow. We, even though we got a lot of interest, we're like, no, we need to make sure this implementation works and the customer is beyond happy. You know, um, I'm proud we've never had a failed implementation. We've never had an unhappy customer. Why is that important is now we're scaling. We're scaling fast. But I feel like we can. Right? And, I feel comfortable because I know everybody's happy with us. And talking about scaling, how, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Um, you know, I mean, I mean, less than $100 million or so. And, you know, in the range of uh, uh, probably in the, you know, Sixty to eighty or so. And what has been the um, the experience? I mean, going from one financing cycle to the next, because obviously this is your your biggest company to date that you've been operating. So, what has been that uh, progression from going from one cycle to the next? Well, I'll tell you, mostly pretty good originally. I mean, pretty good originally. Like I thought I'm going to raise my seed rounds was pretty was pretty fast, was pretty quick. There's a lot of people who believed in me. You know, you know whether. Uh, I don't know why, but they did and backed me and supported me. It was good. It was actually, you know, it was actually COVID when things actually messed up our plan. Because I, I was I was planning things in advance. I had investors way in advance and talking about what we're doing, letting them know we're going to have nine months, we're going to have a round based on this goal. If we hit this goal, are you interested? Okay. And kind of line them up. Um, we did our A1, I say A1, we did our first part of our Series A six months or so before COVID hit, before lockdown. And we were talking to the same investors we had told them in advance of, Instead of raising 20 million, we're going to raise 10 and 10. 10 for the A and then 10 for the A1, which is a 20 million Series A round. Uh, without shaming any investor, we had a major, major tier one investor who basically didn't just, you know, uh, you know, just cancel with us the term sheet discussion and everything, but just stopped responding on lockdown to the communication, the conversation completely. Wow. Um, because, hey, it's lockdown. We're pulling all, you know, all funding. Um, which was tough, right? Because, I mean, we basically had to turn around the day after lockdown and start a formal fundraising process, and explain to somebody why a, a you know a tier one VC is no longer in it as it's supposed to be, and that was tough. That was about a two year process where we raised seventeen million dollars in convertible notes, um, in the average check size of fifty to one hundred k. Wow, about twelve times we got down to about a week of money. Um, and a few times, uh, me and Jake leveraged our personal credit and loans to make sure that uh, no one in the company ever in this time felt uh, even a, a blip on payroll. Now, at the same time this is happening, we're raising, we asked, you're like, why don't we scale down? Well, we were getting deals for the first time. In fact, our first go-to-market and revenue was supposed to happen during COVID. And some of these deals were really important. For example, we were helping Florida disseminate the vaccine and actually get um, places up and running really quickly so nurses can be validated with their credentials and then be tracked so that the vaccine can be taken out. That required us to front a lot more money because it takes the state months to pay back, but it was worth it. And actually, those decisions led to the success and us hitting those numbers and then getting paid. So we just need to get through it. 
that was tough. That was really, really tough. I will say we have some insiders, I'm going to call it Bo Capital, turned around that next day and say, here's 2 million, no questions asked. I believe in you guys. I know this is shitty. Do what you can. You know, and they're like tapped out. They went above and beyond. You know, we had people, same thing with uh, Jan Tallinn and his team over there did amazing work. And so we had some, you know, that were really great. We also learned about who wasn't. I think people really should look at COVID and keep track of, you know, all the VCs who said, yeah, when times will be tough, we'll be there. Times were tough. Who was there? Now, that's the first year, right? Then things were, were explosive. But um, yeah, I mean, we we basically raised some checks or a million or so, but we also raised rounds of, you know, additional friends and families from patient people pitching for 50 to 100K. So I spent the last uh, two years until we basically, you know, got the B together with Rose Par coming in. And then we then we got kind of oversubscribed, of course, you know. And once, you know, when you don't need the money anymore, everyone wants to give you money. But, uh, yeah. you know, when you actually need it, it's tough. I will say AngelList as well. We were able to raise uh, a few million dollars from AngelList, and that was a lifesaver. That's amazing. Now, for the um, you know, for, for the people that are listening to get an idea of the scope and size of the operation, how big are you guys today? Anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable with? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we're about 90 people and hiring. You know, we, we are not slowing down. We are actually, you know, currently one thing I'm proud of is we're, we're beating our numbers for the year, what we expected. We're growing. We're doing great. Um, we are getting, you know, uh, a lot of deals moving much faster than we even anticipated. So, so things are, are, are fantastic today by the numbers. Um, you know, we've done deployments in, in, you know, over a dozen states for meaningful, large deployments, you know, paid accounts. Um, and have also now entered the private sector too. So yeah, I, you know, it's, it's one of those crazy things that COVID, I would never be able to tell where we are here because of COVID, we were just, we were literally just rolling out. We're just starting the revenue model. In fact, we, we were going to be doing stuff in workforce development originally, but because of COVID, we switched to emergency management, right? Follow where the dollars are. And also a lot of state programs literally were halted during COVID. Like people just didn't know how to act and respond. So we moved on a dime, right? Same platform, different use case, put all our effort there. Um, and we always knew, like we knew it was working. The thing was this, I, I always ask my team, are our customers happy? Yes. Are engagement good? Yes. Great. Then we'll raise money. Because we know it's just a matter of like figuring out some of the other pieces. But if your product works and people are happy and you're making real change, then it's just other things that have to come together. And luckily, there's enough people out there with money who will believe in it. And those people are fortunate because uh, those convertible notes had some much lower caps than our original round. And today, I think we're, we're doing much better than we anticipated. Good stuff. Now, imagine you have the opportunity of having a chat with that younger Tomer that is coming out of a college out of a studying biology, you know, and you have the opportunity of giving that younger Tomer one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, I, I would say uh, go find a startup, um, pass Series A, and try to get a job there working close to the founders and learn from that. Because you can learn all that on your own, but it takes four times as long or so. Right. And I think I think having that experience at first would have shot me up faster, maybe better connections. You know, I think at the time there was a where I was doing this, there was this whole push to young entrepreneurship. Right. You know, even dropping out of college. You don't see it as much anymore these days, but there's this giant push of like, yeah, the best entrepreneurs are from there. It's like, the numbers don't even support that, though. Like, I think learning is important, especially in a field that there isn't a lot of uh, information readily available. It's really on the job training. And so I would have told that Tomer save six years of your life, go uh, and go learn from the best. I think that would have yeah. been the advice. 
Absolutely. I love that. I love that. Now, for the people that are listening, Tomer, what is the uh, best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, um, you know, always email. I uh, Tomer at merits.com. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. I, uh, you know, I, I can say other social media, but honestly, I, I check those so infrequently these days. Um, but yeah, I, I'll say something, which is most people never reach out ever. And it's always interesting because of that, the few that do, you can always follow up with. And I always found that the few that do, you always find the most interesting people that way. I love that. Well, Tomer, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. All right. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.